Welcome to Choreographing the City. Morning Conversations, part of the artistic residency of choreographer and Teatro Mundi fellow Dr. Adeshola Akinley. Hosted by Professor Gedimina Urbonas at MIT's Art, Culture and Technology program and supported by MIT Center for Art, Science and Technology. Akinley's residency explores emerging lexicons across dance making and city making through choreographing the city. In this podcast, Akinley and Urbonas are joined by guests in a series of eight morning conversations. In this eighth episode, we will discuss ideas around classism, interdisciplinarity, multiplicity, and the horizontal in ways of working and making with choreographer, performer, teacher, writer, and speaker Liz Lerman. Founder of Liz Lerman Dance Exchange and creator of the critical response process, first developed 25 years ago as a method for giving and getting feedback on working progress designed to leave the maker eager and motivated to get back to work. conversations they're a little informal but they are to some extent choreographed so Liz and I have had a little bit of a chat before now. One of the aims of the residency has been about looking at a lexicon like a shared lexicon or a shared language and so there are a few words that are picked out from all the different talks that we've had that are a nice chain. So I'm just going to quickly recap past conversations and pick out some of the words our first talk we talked to Dr Ellie Cosgrave and one of the things that came up was talking about power, power over and power to and led us to the poetics of encounters with weight because Ellie also talked to us um, from her engineering perspective around designing and buildings and then from that the sort of preciseness of an engineer's need to design something that that works in a specific way to the a different kind of preciseness that a choreographer might have. So we've moved from the idea that choreography and um, say engineering are not opposites that could maybe inform each other, but maybe they've got similarities that are approached in different ways. And Diane talked to us about the way that she works that she calls spontaneous composition. This idea that the piece is something that is a set of engagements or an event that the dancers are responding to, as well as set known step. She talked to us about her work that was going on in Harlem at the same time in the village that Judson Church work was happening. And then Richard Sennett came and spoke to us and he brought some of his uh, memories from that period as a musician at that time. And he raised questions around the idea of how we remain in a creative process and don't lose the people, the very people that we're trying to weave into our creative process. Then we talked with Dr. Mazio around embodiment and the relationships that are created and, and recreated as, as a way of seeing what embodiment can be. That led us into a conversation with Ufunga Dr. Mahana, who talked further about relationships, suggesting that all things stand in eternal relationship within change, so that things are constantly coming together and moving apart. So there's a connection and, and disconnection that 
the world is is made of this continual pattern of of things coming together and moving apart. So that led us to this idea that place has almost a logic of its own that Dr. Pratt talked to us about, that the agency of place is that all things have a future as they're living together. Talking to Dr. John Bingham Hall, who then talked about scores that he'd been developing that involve reading the, the logic of place, of the pl of places of cities. So that's a very quick overview, and I've spoken to Liz a little bit about that overview. And out of that, we have a few talking points. And one of them that Liz responded to after I'd spoken about the conversations that we've had so far was around this idea of training and education and how we unlearn ourselves. And we're going to start with me asking you, Liz, to say a little bit about how do we unlearn ourselves? Um, you know, it, the, this question of training has come up because recently um, um, th there's a thing that I do called the critical response process, which is a system for giving feedback. And we were asked to show up at a, a Google and it turned out that people that they were interested in having this training were the security officers. And so I spent some time trying to think about what is the relationship that I would form between a choreographer and security officers so that we might spend time in the space together sharing our knowledge and feeling like we could move forward together. And I sort of arrived at this thought about training, um, like who gets trained and who gets educated? Now, people who get trained are security officers and police and dancers and sports people. You get trained. Well, I think one reason I moved from being, quote, a dancer to a choreographer is because there was room for non-training <laughs> in a choreographic stance. And, you know, you reflect on the nature of training, and I think training is set up so that you are so secure in something that you will do it no matter what the context. Like, no matter what happens, you can still do that thing. And you can see that that's useful. It can be useful, but it can also be disastrous. That is to say, when context changes, usually we have to change too. So I think for me, it isn't that I knew something called unlearning, it's that I began to challenge the training. In my case, it was a classical ballet, which as I like to say in classicism, you are either right or wrong and mostly wrong. And the, the thing that you have to do is adjust yourself to become that thing. And that thing was arranged for you by others. And typically the question in classicism may be how much do you get to adjust that or how small are the little changes you get to have in relationship to that. And this, again, it's serious because very often those kinds of cultural contexts that hold that training, you want to preserve or in some cases are under direct attack. And so the nature of it's not all wrong and all right. Let me be sure everybody understands that. Um, in my case, uh, a series of external and internal events led me to challenge my entire training. And I raise them simply now, but we can get into it more. And I'll be really interested if you have responses to this, because I believe the time you live in is huge in relationship to the work you do. In my case, I was a mere 14, had just performed for President Kennedy as a classical ballerina as part of a youth thing that had been done in the White House lawn. And I returned to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where I was living at the time. And the civil rights movement was in beginning to really become a presence. We were in the streets. My family took me out of school and sent me to a freedom school. The relationship between classicism and the urgency of the streets clashed. And I guess the question becomes then, Adeshola, what do you keep? What do you, what do you say no to? You would say the training would say it doesn't matter that there's a civil rights movement going on. Go ahead and do the bluebird. That's what you're training for. Do it. 
Whereas the person in the body doing the movement is saying, wait a minute, the world is on fire. I'm not sure the bluebird is what I should be doing right now. Maybe I should be doing a different dance. And thus becomes the untraining. Everything you thought you were doing becomes a question mark. It's a long road. But I was thinking, you know, Adishola, it relates to what you said about things coming together and things coming apart. It's a, it's a part of that. You bring things together in your training, your knowledge, your focusing, your organizing, you're coming to be able to synthesize things. Oh, wait a minute. The world's on fire. Whoops. This doesn't work. This doesn't work. And then you begin the sometimes simple act of disaggregation, sometimes extremely painful because when you pull those things apart, you are pulling at things that maybe, well, are ancestral for you. It gets to what we've been talking about, this sort of interdisciplinary work and choreographing the city is about architects, engineers coming together and beyond that, trying to find a shared language. But I think part of what you were saying and what we've talked about before is the discipline of being not part of a discipline. Well, I actually, um, I, I have sort of two responses to that over time. And one is multiple words for the same thing, that there's quite a creative spirit. In, and they're not precisely congruent, but as you see common ground, you start to see that what you might call uh, postmodernism, someone else might call genetic engineering. And, and so you see that these things are actually have a relational set of possibilities. And for me, there's an enjoyment in leaping from the word I use to, to the word you use, because then I'm in a a more expansive place for a minute and I can wonder about what that has to teach me. So that's part of the interdisciplinary, what you just said about interdiscipline is the, is that willingness to shed for a moment. I can always go back to my definition. I don't have to give it up forever, but the joy of, of wandering into someone else's universe is a joy of saying, oh, I've missed this or my bias kept me from seeing it or the way I was raised. I would never have seen it if I didn't meet you and you showed me that path. So I, I, but I'm a person who is quite open to influence. Like I like being influenced and I like believing that once I've been influenced and here may lie the question of power. Do I really have the agency and power to reorient myself with the new knowledge? I like to say that I do. I want everybody to understand that does not come without bruising. You, you come up against your own profession that defines it in a different way. And it's not like everyone's going to pat you on the back and tell you you've done a good thing. But I think that expansiveness is worth it. But, you know, we've talked about this at a show. I've had to develop sort of philosophical planks in which to operate this way. It's not like, again, even postmodernism as a dance at once I left ballet and moved into that world. Even that doesn't give you ways of thinking that allow you to move across disciplines like, like we've been talking about. You kind of have to build some frameworks for yourself. So I don't think it's without support, but sometimes you have to build them yourself. Would you say a little bit about the horizontal and your work with that? Yeah, and maybe, maybe that's what I was alluding to everybody. And this is, I just want you to know, this is highly schematic. It's way more complex than what I'm going to show you with my hands, but it has served me over time in this way of thinking. So a lot of times, you know, we're told you have to choose. You can't do both things. You can be 
you know, a dancer or a teacher. You can be a poor Leonard Bernstein. You can be a composer or you can be a conductor, but you're somehow polluted or compromised if you do both. And this always troubled me as a kind of voracious person. But it came to a head and, and forced me into rethinking things. I was young when I started choreographing in my 20s and formed a company. And my mother got suddenly sick with cancer and we lost her over a really brief period of a few months, which was just devastating. And I decided that the only way I could figure this out was to make a dance about this. And I wanted old people to be in the piece because I wanted old people to kind of welcome her into whatever spiritual world she had, she was now in. And this was in the mid seventies. And I just want you to know that old people were not around like they are now, like everybody's old now, but at the time old people were really like in homes or away. You just didn't... So I actually didn't know anybody was old. So, you know, I went, I went and found a, what you would now, not quite a nursing home. It was a senior, it was a residency that housed low-income people. And I proposed to them that I uh, teach dance once a week and with the idea that if I was sort of community organizing. I figured within months, they would eventually join me in this project. I didn't talk about my mother's death precisely at the beginning. It's a long story. I won't go into it all, to, but just to say this was unusual. Um, I like to tell people this is pre, pre-jogging. Like this is the United States before people are all out exercising. So it was the whole idea that you had old people and your whole people moving was weird, but I was driven, made a piece about my mother's death. They were spectacular on stage. I was sure that this was the way to go. And I stayed actually working in that particular senior center for a decade while I tried to figure out how you work with old bodies. So during that time, this is what happened. People would approach me and at the same time, I had a dance company, we were starting to tour. We were, got a really good review in the New York Times, which always, you know, sets things in motion. Well, it did at that time. So they go like this. Okay, when you're performing at the Kennedy Center, you're up here. And when you're performing in the nursing home or you're doing whatever that stuff is you do there, you're down here. This is art, this is good. Uh, okay, call that whatever you want. Or people did this. And they would say, wow, that work you're doing in the community, that's really great. That's really important. Why are you still performing at the Kennedy Center? It's old, it's white, it's, East, it's European, it's male. It's, I don't know. Why are you doing that? I was like, I don't want to choose. That's really impoverished. So I did this. Why would I choose? And then I began to realize that moving across this horizontal was really interesting. Moving between the so-called professional world and the so-called therapeutic worlds, which to me is a false dichotomy to begin with. That's what I began to discover is that we do this constantly. You're either this or this. And I began to really wonder, what does this mean? So in this world, for example, if you wanna make a distinction, you literally have to put the other thing down. I wanna make a distinction between community-based practice and therapeutic practices. It's a useful distinction to make, you guys. But in this world, one's better, one's not good. Whereas in this horizontal world, you can make the distinction without rank. You can begin to understand why the context would tell you what you should do. So this became a framework for me. The, the idea of the horizontal, which by the way, if you make it a circle, they're not so far apart. Sometimes I would find it really interesting to walk the whole horizontal because I met so many interesting people along the way. Sometimes they're just next door neighbors. They're like, it's right there. So to some extent, we can look at interdisciplinary practices this way too. What are you crossing through? One end is pu the purity of my profession. 
And at the other end is incredible collaborations. Again, why would I wanna choose? Doesn't mean I'm giving up my dance world when I go off to CERN. It doesn't mean that I'm also not bringing things that I love about my dance world into CERN, but I have to bring everything. So that, that's how the horizontal has supported me over the years. And it has become, it's a, it's an, and that's what I mean by a, a sort of a philosophical framework that allows me to continue to push myself, even when sometimes it's, you feel, and you know, it's really this, you guys. And I want to say, in times of reckoning, like we're in now, it is possible you can't just do this. In times of reckoning, you really may have to do that for a while and then come back to this because the oppression has been so long and so deep. So the, the, so the model, you can see the model, you have to, it, it's in motion. It's in motion, which I find satisfying. Could you say a little bit about how to protect the original meaning of things and how we protect ourselves as we change the meaning of things? Yeah, Anishol was asking that question because we, we, in our conversation, I don't remember how we got to that project, how that came up, but we, um, there was a period of time when I spent a lot of time in Japan because the uh, dance community, but also I think of the wider community was interested in the work with older people that I, forgive me, I'm going to make some mass generalizations here and please feel free to call me out when I do this because but my understanding at that time was that there were many artists in Japan who were older, but they were master artists. They were people who had always been artists and who had gotten older. The uh, people who were supporting this, these projects, uh, some of whom were in the field of health, were connecting with the contemporary dance community in Japan. And the question they were interested in how many people I worked with who had never been performers, but who were now dancers. So, so you see that distinction and that was why there was such a pull to bring us over. So we had done a couple of projects, but they asked me to come over and do one. And I had come across, and I was doing some reading about Japanese history and had come across something called the Shen, uh, Shenimbara, I think I'm saying it right, which was a charm belt made in World War II. And again, some people on this call may know way more about this than me. Each charm belt had a thousand stitches and each stitch was made by a different person in the community. And these belts were worn by soldiers during the war. Now I read that story as incredible, like as a community project. So I thought it would be really interesting if we spend time looking at, at these belts. And uh, so I came over with open eyes and a little tiny bit of history and proposed this to an intergenerational cast that you know we were in front of that had been gathered by our sponsors and all hell broke out. Just fury in the rehearsal hall. Turned out that again, this is just one story, that the younger people hated these belts, thought this was the stupidest thing they'd ever heard. How could people have been? And that the older people may or may not have known anything about it, but if they did, they were highly embarrassed. So I asked everybody to go home and research. I said, would you just give me 24 hours? Would you go home and find out more? What's the story in your family about this? 
what happened when they came back the next day was uh, young people had learned in a couple of cases that these weren't ordinary stitches, that the women had pricked themselves and put blood into the belts, that they had woven hair into the belts, that the pain and suffering along with maybe some magical thinking and prayers had gone into the belt. So we agreed to keep the stories. We agreed that I had made it terrible. <laughs> there was a section in the dance that uh, went something like, the text was something like, uh, leave it to an American to think that, or something like that. <laughs> that yeah, I can't remember precisely what we set up, but uh, an acknowledgement that, that I had um, maybe hadn't done enough asking before I had proposed this, but we did stay with it. So all of this dance was part of a project I was doing called 613 Radical Acts of Prayer. In the Jewish tradition, I'm Jewish, um, there's an old idea that you're supposed to do a, a mitzvah every day. And there was a period of, in, in the orthodoxy where they thought you should actually do 600 of these a day. And that these, that was based on the number of bones they thought were in the body. So I was really interested in this idea of 613 radical acts of prayer. I wanted to understand the word radical and I wanted to understand the word prayer. Like I thought we had too narrow an idea of both of those ideas. Because to me, I was thinking that like the nurses I was working with at home when I was doing this work in hospitals, that they were really radical and they were filled with prayer. And I didn't think that if you thought about radicalism, nurses are the people that would come to mind. So this is why I was in this territory anyway. The outcome is that we, we, we made this piece in Japan and we divided it into act one and act two. And in act one, we said, um, it was a praise prayer, protect us as we keep the original meaning of things. And this was the original meaning behind, you know, the origin story of any given thing. And then act two was protect us as we change the original meaning of things. Because most things have to change. Most things do. And the nature of how we move from that original meaning, remember the context that holds it, the reason you decided it had to be that thing. And then you begin to change that. Well, many, many, many people die over things like that. And what are those processes? So that's what, the, that's what that piece was. And with all of my projects, there's performance pieces, but there are always workshops and associative things that go on that are ways of interacting with people because the, the performance itself is just one small part of what I think we want to be doing with ourselves. And this, I think, relates both also to engineers and also to, well, to any profession, which is there's the thing we do that we're known for, but there's all the other stuff, which is where so much of the good work and the good thinking goes on. And I'm interested in how we share that too, not just the performance. So with the original meaning of something and how that is your relationship with that thing, in a sense, the original meaning is your original relationship with it and how you allow things to become something different to you. Think back in your life when it went, you know, a moment of change. What is it that you're changing and why? and how that works. I mean, I'll go back to classical dance for a minute and say that I think why change can sometimes be so difficult is all of the reasons that you're told, like I trained in classical ballet for many years from a child. And while I was training, what I was told is if you can do classical ballet, you can do anything. You can do any dance form. That classicism, you know, learn all these scales first and you'll be able to do it. Learn this, you'll be able to do it. 
it turns out that this is a really false myth. I Classical ballet, my body is trained in such a way that there are at least half the world's dances that I cannot do. Like my body's all up here, my spine is straight. I'm like, you know, the minute I go into it, everything arranges itself a certain way. Well, if your dance form is down here, <laughs> you're used to the ground, your body has to curve a lot in the middle to do this form. I'm sorry, classical ballet doesn't do that. Now I can do it, but in order to do it, I have to, and here's the unlearning, Adeshola. I actually have to disassociate the molecular makeup of my spine, come somewhere else and then start again. I can do it, but I can't just do it. And that, that's quite a myth you're, you're assaulting when you decide to say, you know what, that's not true. It's just not true. And so the original intentions have to change, the original motivation, the original uh, mythic assemblage of all of the cultural weight that goes with that, gonna have to change. For me, the change is so worth it. Like where you're going is so wonderful and interesting and curious, but I also have a, a faith in my capacity to handle the, the pain. I didn't always know I could do that. I've learned that I can. And also a lot of processes that I can count on to help me. Like you can create the conditions that can support the change. You can build environments of support by the way you treat other people on the journey that will help you. And that's not a byproduct, nor is it a soft skill as people like to say, it's a very hard skill. But if you pay attention to the environments you are in, if you, the manner in which, as I say, you treat your fellow travelers um, with intention, I might add, well, that's pretty interesting. <laughs> but that's why I developed things like the critical response process, this system for giving feedback. I mean, I developed that because I was miserable in the classical form of feedback, which said that my professors or my dance teachers or my anybody could say whatever they wanted to me in whatever tone, in whatever time frame they could have at me. Like, this is ridiculous. There's no consent in that framework, none. And I'm the person getting the feedback. So developing critical response was a real part of my being able to understand that I could handle this because I, I knew there had to be other, other ways that we would, we would treat each other. Dr. Pratt talked a little bit about boundaries and the importance of boundaries. And I took from that that he was talking about what you, you're talking about, that we come from a place. We're not placeless and that affects how we understand and what we see we understand the world through the places that we're in and that involves a sense of boundaries. I know you're, you're thinking about boundary objects at the moment. In my head, I see it as boundaries starting to become dotted line instead of a line or being something that's marked by moments or objects. And that, that really changes then the um, porousness of of the edges of where you feel safe or where you feel you can protect your meaning or where you feel brave. I, uh, I really love your idea of dotted lines. I, I think that's, uh, for me, the earliest metaphor I came up with was the idea of membranes, the way our body works. You can't just have everything all together in there. You need to separate the blood from the this, from the that. I mean, 
but their memories, these magical places where things move through. And that seemed the first of many attempts to try to figure out what you're talking about right now. Another one, oddly enough, emerged out of the work we did when we went to CERN. We spent a lot of time with the physicists. And, you know, if you're an artist, you eventually come across the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, which essentially, and here's my paraphrasing, right? You measure the shape of something, you'll miss its velocity. And if you measure the velocity, you'll miss the shape. Again, I'm, that's my sim very simplistic idea. But I found this really enchanting as a choreographer. Because it turned out that we, most dancers tend to be either shape dancers or momentum dancers. Like they're the people who can tumble out and through and around and just go. And then they're the ones, like myself, classically trained, who are going to go for the shape. And it became first an interesting exercise in, in pedagogy. Could you get people to move to the other kind? But I also began to think about shape and momentum in terms of organizations. That organizations find their shape and then they keep that shape. But if you want to drop into the urgency of the times that we're in, you're going to have to change your shape. You have to literally let go of some, some piece of that shape. You're going to find some momentum. You're going to feel, because when you drop into the momentum, you're going to feel the insistence. And in order to change your shape, uh, Sheldon, here's where the dotted line comes in. It feels more like constellations, like the stars are all there. And then we draw these lines between them and they, we give them a shape. And it's like that. We give, we've given shape to something. It's a, it's a border. And it lasts us as well, I was going to say, as long as we need it. Uh, often they last past that. And how, what, what is it? Do you realign the, the, you realign the lines and give new meaning and intention so that you can slide through this little hole? Maybe. And maybe sometimes you have to like change, change the, the whole thing. I know as a choreographer, I think one of our strengths is because we are, in, particularly in rehearsal, we are making and unmaking so fast. You, you're, you're taking all this stuff and you're saying, wait, we want to see it. You, I mean, you need shape to see. You, you, you just can't see without it. So you, you're forming these things to help people see. And you look at it for a second, you uh, no, no, not really, you know, you raise. So I, I feel like we have a certain um, capacity and maybe strength for what we're talking about right now that we don't mind as much when the shape has changed as some people do because we've been practicing it our whole lives. So this is why I'm an advocate for not just, not just cross-disciplinary work as being product, but really process-driven. Share the processes of an engineer, share the processes of a choreographer with another person, share that stuff. And that's where I think there could be good outcomes from that. You know, I, I think resistance is so interesting until it's not, but it's mostly interesting to me. First of all, I like to treat it as information. Like what's happening? Um, I, over time, I've come to see that sometimes I get resistance because I've gone too far too fast. And that means putting in place lots of different kinds of building blocks. Uh, which is a lot, a lot, a lot of work. And you might not always want to do it. And sometimes you don't want to do it because the reason for the resistance is um, implacable. It will never change. So figuring that out, but 
let's say it's worth it to you to work out what's going on. Then I think the discovery of what the, what the building blocks are to get to some kind of a, a different place teaches us a lot about our own knowledge. Sometimes I liken it to something like this. I want everybody to get over to the other side of the river. That, that's my plan. They're all gonna get to the other side of the river. Well, some people can just leap and they're there. And some people need a bridge. Oh, well, actually they need a really strong bridge that has handles and oh, actually they need someone to hold their hand while they walk. Some people want one of those rope things. Some people want boulders in the water. Some people just need a little trail of, of something sugary and they'll, they'll get there. So when I think about that, it's like either what, what of myself do I have to understand that, or who do I need to partner with to get the sugar so that we can get over there? Now, sometimes it's a partnership thing. Or sometimes it's what in my own knowledge is sugary. I didn't, I'll leave with the sugar instead of leading with information, something like that. I mean, it's not the best example, but it's something along those lines. Sometimes you can do that in five minutes, like literally five minutes and you can make the change. And sometimes it's five years. So that's one thing. Second thing is I pay extraordinary attention to what they're saying and doing and trying to see if there's a way I can mirror back something from what they think they're doing that I also do. In my case, it can be physical. Like I'll watch and the way they gesture and I might say, that's a really interesting gesture you're doing. Um, can we look into that for a minute? And once, you know, sometimes I tell stories. I was visiting an Orthodox Jewish institution that wanted me to do a little movement with a group of people who were studying the Torah. Turned out it was all men. And they had, were holding their prayer books that we were going to work with. We we're going to take a prayer. And, and um I grew up in reform, so there's a whole bunch of stuff about Jewish law I just don't know. So I said, uh, take the book and just put it on the floor for a minute because we're gonna, oh my God, they just went crazy because you're never supposed to put God's name on the floor. So I said to them, that's very interesting. You know, if we were gonna have a dance class, you know, I'd probably lie down on the floor and say, let the floor support you. Everybody drop your weight, let the floor give you itself. And then I said to them, don't you think God wants that now and then? Don't you think God would like to be supported just for a minute? And I know that takes a little bit of chutzpah to do that, but not really. I mean, I was really feeling it. And of course, you know, they, we didn't put the prayer books on the floor. We put the prayer books over on the side. So that's interesting. Where, 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 are, where is it just plain not working? And maybe we know something. You know, I think a lot of it is curiosity and, and oddly enough, help. Um, I will say right now in certain communities, depending on what it is that you want to do, the idea of invitation is really important. And so it may be not that you can just start, but that you actually have to build relationships in order to be invited. And in some communities, that actually even means living there for long periods of time. I, I'm not that far at that end of the spectrum. I'm more of a visitor. I like being a visitor. And I think visitors can do a lot that people who live there cannot, along with certain ways of behaving as a very good visitor. 
what I find really very important in this conversation that Liz brings into focus the tacit knowledge, something that that comes actually with practice, something that perhaps also a good craftsman is also capable to extrapolate from, from the daily, daily practice. That's something that is not possible to uh, learn in the textbooks and maybe, maybe something that is also uh, cannot be established into canon, something that lurks in parallel to our activities, something that is always next to us. So to use the metaphor, I was just recently running a seminar on sympoesis and was interviewing people working in biotech and one of them brought this term shadow biosphere. So something that cannot be really maybe recognized is life forms that cannot be recognized by the parameters that we operate today when we are recognizing life forms. Uh, based on the cycles of energy and so on. And, and to use that uh, metaphor, shadow biosphere, perhaps we can also kind of like think in terms of the tacit knowledges that, uh, that need a different type of articulations uh, and terms than the established ones. So, yeah, so, Lisa, so, so thank you. Thank you for provoking me to think about this uh, shadow, uh, shadow biosphere. It's not a biosphere, uh, of course, we are talking today about. Maybe we're talking about the shadow choreography or these shadow choreographing forces uh, that put uh, meanings and, and things into motion. podcast is possible thanks to the support of the Center for Art, Science and Technology at MIT and the Art, Culture and Technology program and is done in collaboration with Teatro Mundi. If you want to know more about the class, the program and or the artists, follow us on Instagram at choreographingthecity underscore MIT or follow the links provided in your podcast platform. Thank you very much for listening.